0: I'm Michael Schulder on this episode of Wavemaker Conversations.
1: We are, as we all know, a deeply divided country. One thing that could damage this nation terribly is having a national election where the outcome is unclear because we got hacked.
0: That's President Reagan's legendary speechwriter and Wall Street Journal columnist Peggy Noonan on Meet the Press.
1: Right away, we should start saying you got to go paper ballots.
0: The risk to the integrity of our voting system was highlighted this week at a Senate Intelligence Committee hearing. Senator Marco Rubio led this exchange with the Homeland Security Chiefs from both the Trump and Obama administrations. The American Republic is under duress from the inside out. You don't have to change the tallies to create all-out chaos. That's a very real threat, in my judgment. And I think all Americans should be concerned about it.
1: We make sure that we are providing the tools and resources we need uh, to state and locals so that they can prevent, identify, track, and then respond to, to any such issues. Our country needs baseline,
0: mandatory federal election security standards. And what I'm talking about
1: here are paper ballots and post-election risk-limiting audits.
0: This illustrates an emerging consensus that paper ballots may be one of our best bulwarks to protect the integrity of our next elections. On this Wavemaker Conversation, a woman who saw this coming for a long time. For 15 years, Barbara Simons has been one of the leading advocates of a move towards paper ballots.
1: If you're gonna have a voting system that depends for its results on a paperless voting machine, basically paperless computer, you're asking for trouble.
0: If Barbara Simons had stopped her education in her 20s, she would not be a voice of influence on this critical national security issue.
1: So I dropped out of school before I finished my undergraduate degree. And I felt like a failure.
0: But now with a PhD in computer science and after many years at IBM...
1: I lose sleep at night, literally worrying about the upcoming midterms and the presidential race. This is a national security issue. This is a really, really dire issue.
0: The goal in this episode of Wavemaker Conversations, trying to create a wave of support and money for paper ballots everywhere, so we can all sleep a little better. Barbara Simons, welcome to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious.
1: Well, thank you for having me.
0: When I was thinking that I wanted to do something serious on paper ballots, I asked somebody in the field, is there a mother or father of the paper ballot movement? And that person said, yes, Barbara Simons. And so I looked you up, and the first thing I came across was a recent profile that you're aware of in The Atlantic magazine called The Computer Scientist Who Prefers Paper. Barbara Simons believes there is only one safe voting technology, and that's paper.
1: I don't consider myself the only person who started this. There were people who were concerned about this issue actually before I got involved.
0: When was the first time you thought, you know what, we need paper ballots, here's why, and here's what I'm going to do about it?
1: Around 2003, the Santa Clara County, which is Silicon Valley in California, was looking to buy paperless voting machines. I found out about this from David Dill, who was a Stanford University professor, and who was appalled by the news, and he and I kind of teamed up together and went and spoke to one of the members of the Board of Supervisors of Santa Clara County to urge him to vote against the purchase of paperless voting machines. When we got there, he showed us a thick notebook that he had been given that discussed all the pros and cons of the various vendors' systems that were proposed. There were three of them. They looked at things like focus groups' reactions to the machines. Did they like them? Did they find them easy to use? Were they enthusiastic about them? And so on. There was nothing, nothing in that notebook about security. Nobody had even asked the question. And we were both rather shocked because we're both computer scientists. And we know that software can have bugs or it might have hidden malicious code called malware, something we've heard a lot about in the past few years. And that if you're going to have a voting system that depends for its results on a paperless voting machine, basically paperless computer, you're asking for trouble. But we fought it there. We got a group of computer scientists to join us in testifying before the board of supervisors. But we were ignored. I mean, the vendors said our systems are secure. They work fine, you just push a button at the end of the day, you get the results, you can go home early. So we lost that vote two to three.
0: I guess that was in the aftermath, clearly, of the hanging chads, the 2000 presidential election, correct?
1: Yes, that's right. HERE IN FLORIDA, THE PRESIDENTIAL CONTEST GETS TIGHTER BY THE HOUR. AND LAST NIGHT IN THE MIDDLE OF THE NIGHT IN PALM BEACH COUNTY, ELECTION OFFICIALS DECIDED TO COUNT ALL OF THE BALLOTS BY HAND. THAT'S MORE THAN 400,000 VOTES. HOW WERE THOSE VOTES COUNTED? (laughs) DO YOU HAVE AN HOUR? I CAN EXPLAIN IT. (laughs) IT WAS PRETTY COMPLICATED. First you have to know that the punch hole is called a chad. It is attached to the ballot by four threads. And the commissioners decided that any chad that was detached to any degree would be counted as a vote. Unfortunately, one of the lessons that people took from Florida 2000 and the hanging chads was that paper is bad. That was the wrong lesson to take. That was the wrong conclusion to make. The conclusion should have been Inappropriate use of paper is bad. Not that paper is bad. Just like inappropriate use of computers is bad, not that computers are bad. Obviously, I'm a computer scientist. Most of my colleagues who are working on this are computer scientists. We are not opposed to computers. We love computers. We work on them all the time. What we are opposed to is the inappropriate use of computer technology.
0: So you went from that one loss and clearly you didn't give up. So what was your next move, and what kinds of reactions did you get when you began this campaign and began trying to push it forward?
1: David Dill, who is the computer scientist with whom I went to speak with the supervisor in Santa Clara County about these machines, decided to start an organization called Verified Voting. And he invited me to be a board member at the beginning. So I was on the original board, which consisted of David, his wife, and me. So we were the board. And we enlisted some other computer scientists to get involved. And that's how we started, basically by reaching out to our colleagues in the field.
0: And by the way, at this point, I should just point our audience to verifiedvoting.org, which really has a fantastic and thorough state-by-state breakdown of the systems and the potential for which states might indeed go to paper or have gone to paper and which ones are still holding out. You started in 2003, so it's been a 15-year battle for you.
1: I got involved initially, earlier than 2003. I was on a panel that was commissioned at the request of President Clinton to examine internet voting, and we came out with a report back in 2000. And when I first joined that panel, I hadn't really thought about the issue. And my area of research in computer science is theory, not security. So I hadn't really given a lot of thought to security back then. And I went into the commission work thinking that internet voting was a great idea, as I think most people do when they first hear about it. And I was quickly disabused of that notion. The report came out in opposition to internet voting. It did consider some possible workarounds, which, in retrospect, I think really weren't a good idea. So anyway, all I'm saying is that I've been involved since before 2000, and My initial thought about internet voting, like probably many of your listeners, was that it would be a good idea.
0: There was a quote in this profile of yours, and I'd like for you to expand on it for the laymen and women out there. You said, it's not that I don't like computing or I don't like computers. I mean, I'm a computer scientist. Many of the leading opponents of paperless voting machines were and still are computer scientists because we understand the vulnerability of voting equipment in a way most election officials don't. Can you explain to us precisely what is the vulnerability of voting equipment?
1: Well, computerized voting equipment, anytime you have a computer involved, you have to worry about software bugs. When you're talking about elections, you have to worry about mistakes in the programs for each election. And you have to worry about hidden malware in the software. What makes voting a lot harder from other areas where we use software is that the ballot is secret. So, for example, and this applies to internet voting, if I buy a book from Amazon, I want them to know I am buying the book, I want them to know what the book is, and they want to know who I am and what I'm buying, but when I vote, I don't want the election officials or anybody else to know how I vote. That makes it a much harder problem. We read almost daily about various institutions that have been hacked, banks, government agencies, corporations. I'm getting into internet voting now, but people will say, I can bank online, why can't I vote online? And the answer is, you can't safely bank online either. I bank online, but that's because I know if money is stolen, it'll be replaced by the bank. But if my vote is stolen, nobody can replace it. But with banking, it's not a secret. Between me and the banker, it's not a secret. Whereas between me and the election official, it should be a secret. That makes it harder.
0: And so as now we come to the headlines today, and obviously the big concern is Russian meddling and Russian malware, and what we know right now is that there were efforts to meddle with the electoral process in 21 states, I believe was the count. There are so many stories. We're overwhelmed with breaking news every day, which is the one that we should all go look at and reread and familiarize ourselves with.
1: Well, we don't really know exactly what happened in 2016. That part disturbs me a great deal. The stories that you referred to about the Russian attacks on our voting systems typically, as I understand it, were attacks on the voter registration databases. And by the way, those are very vulnerable. And the threat there is that these attacks could delete names of legitimate voters from the databases or change their addresses so when they go to the polls they're not listed in the right place. Or they could basically do ballot box stuffing by adding names that don't belong there and then voting remotely for those individuals. So these attacks are in fact a serious threat and one has to make these databases as secure as possible. But what we don't know, despite claims that we do, is whether or not any of the ballots were actually changed. We don't know because nobody has done... A proper study. Now, in some cases, it's impossible to know because five states vote completely on paperless voting machines, and another eight or nine, depending on how you count, vote in part on paperless machines. Wherever you have these paperless machines, you cannot do a recount because you don't know if the results that are stored in the memory of those computers, the voting machines, which are computers, are accurate, if they accurately represent the selections of the voters. You just don't know.
0: So you could just be basically recounting the flawed count in the beginning.
1: If it's flawed, you'll get the same result. Whereas if you have paper ballots, you can do a check against the computer. If they're voter marked paper ballots, they were filled out by the voter. And those paper ballots should accurately represent the will of the voter. So if you have paper ballots, you could do a recount of those ballots. Or you could do what we call a post-election ballot audit, that basically randomly selects some of the ballots and compares them against what the computer says to make sure the computer is behaving correctly and if it's not, looks at more ballots until either it determines that the results are correct or you do a total manual recount. So these tools are available where there's paper. They were not used in 2016.
0: It just sounds to me, listening to you and having read up on this, that paper ballots would be relatively inexpensive, less expensive than the machines many states currently use. They would be verifiable. They are as nonpartisan as you can get. Is there some strategy that hasn't been incorporated yet that could be incorporated in a hurry, or is this just some huge ship that's going to take years and years to turn around?
1: The issue is we need money. There are a number of states, for example, the governor of Pennsylvania would like to replace all of their obsolete, ancient, insecure voting machines with paper ballot systems, but he doesn't have the money. There's legislation that has been introduced, bipartisan legislation, in the Senate called the Secure Elections Act that would provide some funding to the states so that they can replace these systems. I had mentioned earlier the opposition that we got early on from many election officials. We aren't experiencing that so much anymore, fortunately. And for one thing, election officials understand, in many cases, that their machines are old and that they need replacing. And they would replace them if they had the money. The security issue is a really, really hard issue because if it were easy to solve it, we wouldn't have all these hacks that are going on all the time. And I'm not talking about voting. I just have a huge, long list of institutions that have been hacked. And they're all over the place, including like Symantec, which provides security. I mean, they were hacked. Google was hacked. Federal government was hacked. Banks spend millions of dollars trying to make their systems secure. Local election officials don't have enough money as it is. They don't have that kind of resource. They don't have computer expertise. They don't have access to computer security experts. They just don't have the resources to protect themselves against a nation state which has basically, for all intents and purposes, unlimited resources. They just can't. It's naive to think they can't.
0: I have to stop you there because when I think of paper, I think inexpensive compared to machines.
1: Well, it's not that easy because we don't just replace them with paper ballots. In most cases, we also have to buy scanners to read those ballots and tabulate them. It's less than these touchscreen machines cost, relatively speaking, when they were purchased. And you certainly don't need as many scanners, For example, at the polling place, you need only one, whereas with these touchscreen machines, you would typically have like five of them at the polling place. So it is a cheaper technology. I just want to make clear that these scanners are also computers. These scanners are vulnerable to being hacked. And when people say that our voting systems are secure because they're not connected to the Internet, that's just not true. Another point I'd just like to rebut that is frequently repeated is that we have such a variety of voting systems in this country that it would be impossible to hack an election because you'd have to hack too many different kinds of systems. And, of course, that argument completely ignores the existence of the electoral college, where you only need to focus on a few swing states. And even within those swing states, you would need to focus only on a few swing districts in a close election to change the results. So these are both incorrect arguments, and I just wanted to knock them down.
0: I worry about one other thing, which is a limited hack which didn't even change the results of a single election, even locally, but were uncovered, could very much damage people's faith in whether the election results were changed by hacking.
1: I would put it even stronger. I would say, you don't have to do a hack, just say you did. And that would create a lot of suspicion. That's why we need to have transparency in our elections. We need to have paper ballots and... We need to check the scanners by doing a post-election ballot audit. That needs to be mandated by law. There is no excuse for putting the burden for calling for a recount or even just an audit of the ballots on the shoulders of the candidates. It should not be the candidate's responsibility. It is in the interest of the entire country, of all the voters, to get the results right. And therefore, we need to have laws that mandate that these results are checked and verified afterwards in a very transparent way, just so that the kind of thing you're talking about can't happen. If somebody says, well, I hacked the election, we should be able to prove, no, you didn't. I think that's critical for our democracy. And I would also like to say, I've heard several people, security people, experts, say we have experienced a cyber Pearl Harbor with the attacks from Russia, but we are not responding to it the way we have responded to the actual Pearl Harbor. We are not treating this issue with the urgency that it desperately needs.
0: You were in Las Vegas recently. Tell us about Las Vegas and what was demonstrated there.
1: Well, I was in Las Vegas for the DEFCON conference, which is a big conference of hackers, most of whom are legitimate. But anyway, it's a big conference of hackers. And for the first time, they had a voting machine hacking village for which they procured voting machines, some of which were still being used, some of which had, thank goodness, been finally decertified, but had been used for a lot of elections, far too many. And basically, the hackers were able to more or less get into everything. It was quite useful for our cause because it illustrated the fact that this is not just an abstract theoretical notion that these machines are vulnerable.
0: The fact that you are playing such a critical role in this mission and that your credibility on this comes in large part from your education It's fascinating to me that among the things that does not exist on your CV, if I'm correct, is an undergraduate college degree.
1: Uh, Right. I don't have an undergraduate degree. So I dropped out of school before I finished my undergraduate degree. And I went back to school some years later, just taking classes as an extension school student. I was at Stony Brook, and so I just took each semester a math and a computer science class because I'd been a math major before I dropped out
0: can you back up just a touch? So growing up in your family, or was it a family that just sort of stressed education and math in particular? Did you always know you had an aptitude for math?
1: My family always stressed education, but not math. My parents weren't particularly mathematically inclined. I learned fairly early on that I like math. Basically, I learned that with algebra, because before I took algebra in high school, I'd heard all these stories about how horrible it was, because everybody told me how scary it was. And when I took it, I thought, this is pretty cool. This is really fun. Solving problems, I mean, you know, puzzles and so on.
0: And then you got into which college?
1: I got into Wellesley. So then I met my person who became my first husband, who was an MIT grad student. And he was transferring to Berkeley to study mathematics there. And so... We went off to Berkeley together and and then eloped. It was kind of a crazy story. I was at Berkeley for a couple of years, but during that time, I had my first child and dropped out part of the time. And then we went back to Boston. He had a job at MIT, and I basically dropped out of school.
0: And all that while, did you think, I'm going to go back one day, or did you think, no, this is it?
1: I didn't really think. I mean, if anything, I felt like a failure, really. I remember looking out the window once I mean I just had this image looking out the window of our house, which was a very nice house, this was in Stony Brook, and thinking, Well, I'm a failure, but I hope my daughter won't be And this is when I was in my mid twenties. You know, looking back now and thinking that I had declared myself a failure in my mid twenties, it looks rather amusing, but at the time it felt very serious.
0: Well well I have to say I think we can all relate to that on one level or another. You felt like you're a failure with one child in your mid-twenties?
1: I had three children in my mid-twenties.
0: At some point the marriage ended, and roughly how old were you when that happened?
1: We basically split up when I was 30, and then I started going back to school. I had tried auditing courses before then, but then I always dropped out when it got rough, so I decided the only way I would stick with it was if I actually signed up for classes. So that's what I did, and I only went back part-time because I had three little kids, so I just didn't have time to be a full-time student.
0: For the many women out there, certainly, you know, who, I mean, if you were feeling like a failure and in your mid-20s and then you hit 30 and suddenly that marriage is no longer there as a foundation, that takes a lot of strength to just persevere and then continue your education. So I find it interesting and inspiring. And then you kept on pursuing that education.
1: Well, first of all, I should say I was very fortunate. In fact, my former husband and I are still good friends. We all get together over Thanksgiving. So... We were fortunate that the marriage breakup wasn't really horrendous, the way some are. And I did have enough money when I went back to school that I didn't have to work, which, if I had, it would have been impossible to go back to school. Uh, Many people, many divorced women, aren't so fortunate. I went back to school because I didn't see any alternative. I had no skills. I couldn't really get a decent job. And education had always been important to me. What was hard was going back to school at the age of 30 and being in classes with 18-year-olds. That was hard. And the other thing that was hard was going back to school after having been out for nine years and lost the habit of studying. That was difficult, too.
0: I want to stop on that phrase, the habit of studying. There's a certain muscle memory, and it's just like working out and exercising. If you stop for a long, long time, it almost feels like you're starting from scratch.
1: Yes, it does feel like starting from scratch, and in my case, it felt that way even more so because I was taking math and computer science, but i had actually forgotten some of my math because it had been quite a while. and I hadn't used it. So it did in many ways feel like I was starting from scratch.
0: So then how is it possible that you then skipped over the undergraduate process and, if I'm not mistaken, got a PhD?
1: Well, I didn't intend to do this. I mean, the way I went back to school, and this is something I do say to people as a way of encouragement. When I went back to school... I certainly didn't have the goal of getting a PhD because if that had been my goal, I never would have gone back to school. I went back to school with the idea that if I can learn how to program, I'll be ahead of the game. That was when I first went back. So I took a programming class, and I liked it. And then I said, okay, well, I'm going to learn a little more. So that was my next goal. And then even when I got into graduate school, I thought, well, maybe I'll get a master's degree if I'm lucky. And then when it looked like I had the ability to get a master's degree and transferred to Berkeley and everything. Well, I probably won't get a PhD, but hey, you know, I've already made this progress. And so each step of the way, if I pass, I'm ahead of the game. So when I had to take prelims, something you have to do to get a PhD, I thought, well, I don't know if I'm going to pass the prelims, but even if I fail them, I'm still ahead of the game. And if I pass them, that's even better. And so I would set my goal just a little bit above where I currently was. As I say, when I went back to school, the single goal I had was just to learn how to program, not to get a PhD. And so each step of the way, I just set the goal a little bit higher. And then I didn't feel totally intimidated because if I had gone back to get a PhD, I I just couldn't have done it. I simply couldn't have done it at that stage.
0: There's so much wisdom there in terms of, I mean, sometimes you hear, look, set your sights on the horizon, and sometimes you need to do that to orient yourself and get that big picture and the inspiration. But in your case, it was more a matter of chipping away and just looking at that next level. Yes. That was within reach.
1: Yes, where I could conceive of making it.
0: Right. And so you kept on hitting the next level and the next level and the next level. And then was there a moment when you looked back and realized where you'd come from and you were up there pretty high?
1: Well, when I when I got my PhD, I sort of expected the bells to ring and people to celebrate in the streets because it seemed like such a momentous <laughs> occasion. But that really didn't happen and in fact, people expected me to continue producing in terms of my undergraduate degree, my non-existent undergraduate degree, when I went back to school. Computer science was a relatively new field. And so within a few years, I found myself taking classes that were considered graduate work. And so somebody said to me, you know, you're doing the work of a master's student, but you're not matriculating. So I applied for admission as a graduate student at Stony Brook. So that's how I got into graduate school without having an undergraduate degree.
0: So final question then, you're on this multi-year campaign to convince the broad use, really the universal use of paper ballots. But it does seem like there's a deadline here. We might have already passed the deadline.
1: I feel a tremendous burden. We know the solution. We know how to protect our country against hacking of our elections by anybody, not just the Russians, by any country. I mean, it's not just Democrats who have to be worried. Republicans should be worried, too, because this elections could be hacked by China, by Iran, by countries that may not like Republicans. So that's why this is really a bipartisan issue or a nonpartisan issue. That's why we were able to get legislation introduced with bipartisan sponsorship. But we have a solution. We know what the solution needs to be. I lose sleep at night, literally worrying about the upcoming midterms and the presidential race. This is a national security issue. This is a really, really dire issue. And we need to get behind the people who know what needs to be done. We also need to get behind the effort at the national level to provide funding for the states. That's really critical. We have a bill, but it hasn't really moved very much. And so anything people can do to encourage the senators in their state and ultimately their members of Congress to support funding to provide the money that states need to replace their voting systems would be really helpful.
0: When I hear somebody like you say, I'm losing sleep over this, that is going to give me sleep problems tonight. Do you literally lose sleep over this? Yeah, I do. What happens? Do you you have a tough time falling asleep? Do you wake up in the middle of the night and and think of something in particular that could or is going to go wrong?
1: I typically wake up in the middle of the night. I worry about our democracy. I mean, that sounds so trite and cliched, but I do.
0: So it's literally an anxiety feeling about just what could happen to our democracy over this issue.
1: Over this issue? I mean, there are many issues I worry about, but certainly over this issue, which is the one that I know the best I worry about our world. I mean, there's a lot of issues that aren't being addressed that need to be addressed. But for those people who are concerned about these other issues, as I am too, if you're going to fix them or correct them or deal with them, the first thing we have to do is to make sure our elections aren't rigged, that they aren't stolen, or even aren't wrong because of software bugs. I mean, that's just like the foundation. That's the foundation of our democracy. I mean, we can't go anywhere if we don't trust our elections. And by the way, as we've said earlier, that could be the case even if nothing is done, if people just don't trust them because they know they're insecure.
0: Barbara Simons, thank you so much for joining me on Wavemaker Conversations. I really appreciate all this time.
1: Well, thank you. I've enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to Wavemaker Conversations, a podcast for the insanely curious. If you find this podcast enriching, I hope you subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts. And if you love it, I hope you'll take a minute to convey that on the ratings and reviews section of the subscription page. You can also follow and subscribe on my website, wavemaker.me. Once you subscribe for free, the episodes are delivered automatically to your phone or computer. And then... Every traffic jam, every train ride, every flight becomes an opportunity to get smarter by listening to amazing people share the bounty of their wisdom and experience. Thanks to my producer, Lily Duran, who edited this episode. I'm Michael Shoulder. Thank you for listening to Wavemaker Conversations.